Do you have a seat? Well, let me start by introducing myself. As Simon mentioned, my name is Andy. Um, I live in Chippenham. I'm one of the leaders of a church down there, uh, married to Hannah, have three daughters. Um, my, my, my connection with this church is quite a long-standing one. I grew up here. Uh, when I was growing up, it looked a bit different. There were pews in this room, and it was facing that way. And then as a teenager, we got rid of the pews, and it started facing that way. And then I left the university, and this happened. So uh, uh, it's, it's a real joy, and a, it's, it's great to be back and to visit and to see what God has been doing and is doing here. So, um, yeah, it's great to be with you, and thanks for having me. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of uh, going to the doctor with what you think is a small problem and then finding out it's a much bigger problem than you realised. Maybe you've been playing sports or something and you felt a pain, you think, oh, I've pulled my muscle, and you go and you've torn a ligament or you've broken a bone or something more serious. Uh, maybe you've had some stomach pain and you've wondered what it was and gone to the doctor and it's appendicitis, got to have your appendix removed. I remember growing up once we had a family holiday in Sweden and I developed a, a bit of a rash to some spots. Uh, I've got sensitive skin, so it wasn't too unusual. I was scratching one day and uh, my mum, who some of you might know, um, suggested we see a doctor. There was a doctor on site, so we went to the doctor and found it was a bacterial infection, pretty serious. So we then had to go to a, this pharmacy in Sweden and try and explain through a language barrier what was the problem and how we can get some help um, ended up going on antibiotics for what felt like months, um, probably just a few weeks. wonder if you've ever had that experience, going to the doctor. think you've got a small problem, turns out to be much bigger than you think. If that's happened to you, how have you responded? I imagine there's initially a shock. Oh no, things are worse than I thought. Um, and then after the shock, perhaps relief. It's worse than I thought, but at least the problem's now understood and I'm in the right place to get help. That's a bit like what happens in today's passage that we're looking at that was read for us earlier. A man comes to Jesus, he comes with a problem. It's actually not a small problem, it's a big problem. But he discovers when he comes to the doctor that his problem, his real problem, is much bigger than he thought it was. And as we look at him and we look at Jesus and what he says this morning, we're going to see that we can be the same. Uh, we can come to Jesus with our problems, uh, and they can be big problems. But then we discover from what he says um, that our real problems are maybe much worse than we thought. Uh, and that can be shocking. It can be uncomfortable. But there's also real relief and freedom and joy in knowing that we're in the right place to get the help that we need. So if you haven't already, please do turn to the passage that was read Earlier, It's in page 813 of these blue Bibles, um, Matthew chapter 9. The passage we're looking at comes in the middle of a section in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapters 8 and 9, that's full of action. Jesus is full of action. Uh, he's just uh, taught in, in chapters 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, a very famous sermon, showed his authority through his teaching. And now he's showing his authority through the miracles that he performs. The miracle we're going to look at is the third of a set of three. He's uh, crossed the lake, he's, healed a, he's, he's calmed a storm, he's gone and driven out demons from two men, and now he's gonna show his authority over an even greater enemy. He's coming back over the lake, and we pick up the story 
on his return in verse one, uh, Matthew chapter nine and verse one. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So Jesus is back on home turf, back in his hometown, Capernaum. Uh, he's had a busy schedule. He's been calming storms and driving out demons. You would think it's time for a rest, a bit of recuperation, but no. Uh, some people bring to him a paralyzed man, paralytic. The man can't move, he can't walk. The text doesn't say why he's paralyzed. He might have been paralyzed from birth. Maybe he had a traumatic accident at some point. It doesn't say why, but he's got a big problem. Um, back in Jesus' day, there, were no, there was no benefits system. He couldn't apply to the government for a disability allowance. So he had nothing. He couldn't work. And if he couldn't work, he couldn't live. He would have been reduced to begging. This man who came to Jesus on the mat would not have been in a good state. He wouldn't have smelled nice. He was a beggar. He was poor. Now, Jesus, by this point, is getting a reputation um, of being a worker of amazing miracles. People would have gathered around when they saw this man being brought to Jesus, expecting something great. They're hoping for a miracle, hoping for a show. Just uh, one, one note, by the way. If you're familiar with this story, you might have heard this story in other Gospels. If you've read uh, Mark or Luke, um, you'll know there's more to the story than this. Uh, Mark and Luke share that when these men bring this paralyzed man to Jesus, they actually bring him through the roof. Uh, might know the story. Uh, there's a crowd in the room. They can't get to Jesus. They take him up onto the roof, dig a hole in the roof, and lower the man down in front of Jesus. So, so you might wonder, well, why doesn't Matthew include that bit? That's the best bit, isn't it? That's the fun bit, where they make a hole in the roof and everyone's amazed. Why not here? Well, if you're telling a story and you, you shorten it, you leave bits out, um, what, what's the effect? It puts more focus on the bits that are left, doesn't it? So Matthew says nothing about the friend's actions. He doesn't even call them friends. He says some people brought a paralytic to Jesus. Why? Because he wants us to focus on Jesus. He wants more focus on what Jesus says and what Jesus does. And what Jesus says is not what anyone would have expected. They've come, they're hoping for a miracle. What does Jesus say in verse two? He sees their faith and he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What? That's not what he came for. He came to be healed. Didn't come for his sins to be forgiven. You can imagine the murmuring amongst the crowd. What's, what's going on? What's he saying? Maybe the disciples are looking at each other, awkward glances. This isn't part of the script. That's the wrong line, Jesus. He came for healing, not for forgiveness. Now, I think if we've heard this story before, we can miss the shock of what Jesus says at this point. It's not what people would have expected. It's shocking. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate just how surprising it would have been. Um, the other day, I went to the dry cleaners. I had a coat that needed dry cleaning, so I took it to the local Morrisons, where there's a little dry cleaning compartment, took it to the very nice, kind, uh, middle-aged lady who told me what the price would be. I said, yes, please, gave her the coat, went home. Now, just imagine, I, I go back to collect my coat from the dry cleaners. I park my car in the Morrison's car park. I take my trolley, I go around the shop, I do my weekly shop, uh, perhaps browse some clothes, I go through the till and pay for everything. On my way out, I go to the dry cleaners to pick up my coat. Uh, just imagine, the lady says to me, uh, ah, are you the, uh, the owner of the white Vauxhall Zafira BJ11LVX? I say, yes, I am. She says, I've got good news for you. 
Your car's been saved from the scrap heap. I've done all the repairs myself. I've tested it, and it's roadworthy. Good news, you can drive it home. What, what would I think? What, what, what? What's going on? Um, first of all, that's not what I came for. I'm here to pick up a coat. But then I'll have all kinds of questions, won't I? What, what's happened to my car, for a start, to mean it was going to go to the scrap heap? How come you're the one who's fixed it? You're a dry cleaning lady. And what do I owe you? And that's a bit like the effect that Jesus' words would have had on this man. He comes for healing. He says your sins are forgiven. What? What's going on? First of all, that's not what I came for. Then he's got all, he's got all kinds of questions, hasn't he? What have I done to, to need forgiveness for my sins? How come you're the one to offer forgiveness? And what do I owe you? Now, imagine, if you will, um, just extend my slightly far-fetched illustration. Um, next to the dry-cleaning place in Morrison's, there's a, a Timpsons. Just imagine there's, there's two men standing there, and they're having their, their shoes fixed or their keys cut or whatever they, they do um, there. And, and they're DVLA inspectors. Imagine that they're standing there as I'm having this conversation with the dry-cleaning lady. And their ears prick up when they hear what she's saying to me. And they look at each other, and they're concerned. They exchange glances. What, what's going on? Who does this lady think she is? She's not qualified to fix his car and to test it and to say it's roadworthy. Maybe they're angry. This lady's claiming she's got the authority to, to classify this car as roadworthy. That's our job. Well, that's a bit like what happens next in uh, Matthew's account. Enter the scribes in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes who were standing there said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Now, scribes were religious uh, teachers. They were the ones who were qualified, if you like, to speak to people about sin. That's their job. They're, they're saying to themselves, who does this man think he is to be forgiving this paralyzed man's sin? Who does he think he is? He's got no authority to do that. Now, blaspheming, that word blaspheming, um, just means doing or saying something that is disrespectful to God. So why were Jesus' words here um, blasphemy? Why did they think they were blasphemy? Because only God is qualified to forgive sin. When we sin, it's God who is the injured party. So only God has the right to forgive sin. So when Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, it's a claim to divine authority. It's a claim to be God, to be able to forgive the man's sin. So for a human to say that would have been incredibly disrespectful. And the scribes, thinking Jesus is just a man, they're outraged. And Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he decides to confront them. So at this point in, in the room, uh, the mood changes. Up to this point, you can imagine there's been an excited buzz. People are talking amongst themselves. What's going to happen? Is he going to heal the man? They're excited. But now, Jesus speaks. There's a hushed silence, because the scribes were respected people. Ordinary members of society would have deferred to the scribes. They would have done what they said. And Jesus speaks to them directly, publicly, so everyone can hear. And he says in verse 4, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... 
He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus has just massively raised the stakes here. It is clear to everyone that the scribes don't like Jesus. They're outraged, they're angry at what he said. But Jesus responds to their anger by by kind of setting himself this challenge. He says, it's easy, isn't it, just to say to the man, your sins are forgiven. Words are easy. No one can see if the man's sins have been forgiven. You can't see inside his heart. There's no evidence to know if that's actually happened or not, if anything's taken place. You can't verify that claim. But to heal the man, in full view of everyone, for this paralyzed man to stand up and walk, there's no denying that. So Jesus, it's like he's saying, I want to show you that my words were not just words. When I spoke to the man just then, his sins were actually forgiven. Because I've got divine authority to do that, and I'm going to show you that by healing the man now. So he turns to him. He says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And at this point in the room, all eyes are on those three characters. Jesus, scribes, paralyzed man. You could hear a pin drop. And what happens? Verse 7. Six words. And he rose and went home. Matthew describes the event in six words. But that event would have changed the man's life. He, he starts to feel strength regaining his legs. He tries to move. And he can. He stands up. He can walk. He can work. He can earn. He can live. He can marry. He can have children. His life is completely transformed because of what Jesus has done. And the crowds, they get the point. They can see something amazing has happened. Verse 8. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They're awed. They're afraid. They can see this is different. Jesus is not just an ordinary teacher. This is, this is different. It's an amazing miracle, isn't it? But it raises a question. And the question is, what's Jesus doing here? Why does he go after the man's sin first? It's not what anyone would have expected. It's not in the script. Why does he go there first to the sin issue? Well, I think the answer is, the answer is because he wants to teach us. He wanted to teach them, and he wants to teach us something really important, actually two Really important things, two really important things that Jesus wants to teach us through this. And the first is this, your sin is a bigger problem than your suffering. Your sin is a bigger problem than your suffering. That's the reason Jesus goes there first, because he wants to make the point, this man's got a big problem that you can see, but the problem you can't see is even bigger. Jesus is not saying, by the way, that his sin caused him to be paralyzed, there's not a direct link between suffering and sin in that way. Um, but his, his problem of sin is bigger than his problem of suffering. I wonder if I asked you, uh, what's your biggest problem? What would you say? What have you come to church this morning carrying? What burdens are you carrying? What's your biggest problem? Maybe as, as soon as I say that, you know the answer. Um, it's, it's paying my bills. That's my biggest problem. I'm just uh, stressed about money. Maybe it's a problem at work, um, a problem with your boss or one of your colleagues and you feel trapped. There's no way to fix it. Maybe it's hopes for the future that at this stage it just feels like there's no chance of them ever happening. It could be anxiety that 
shadows everything. Addictions you can't control. A relationship that's precious to you falling apart. The dark cloud of a chronic health condition. We all have problems. Some of them are really severe. I wonder what yours is. If the paralyzed man was here, um, he'd perhaps be in a wheelchair, sitting at the back somewhere. We would think his, his problem was fairly obvious. He, he can't walk, he can't work. Jesus wants to say no. No, that's not his biggest problem. And, and your suffering isn't your biggest problem either. We've all got a bigger problem. What's true for him is true for us all. Our sin is a bigger problem than our suffering. Uh, maybe you're sitting there uh, and you're thinking, well, it's all very well for him to stand at the front and say that, but he's got no idea. He's got no idea what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. And I get that. And suffering is hard. And some suffering is really hard. And I'm not minimizing that for one moment. I'm not. But even still, I want to try and persuade you that this is true, that our sin is a bigger problem than our suffering. Uh, I don't know if anyone enjoys gardening here. Um, I quite like, when I have the time, I quite like being in the garden. Anyone like gardening? Not many people, okay? If you do uh, like gardening or ever get into gardening at some point, this is the time of year when you might be putting uh, seedlings out into the ground. Um, You grow small seeds in a pot, and then around this time of year, you put them out into the ground and watch them grow into flowers. Uh, Maybe you've done that already. Um, If if you have, then you might be anxiously looking at the weather to hope there's no more frost and your little precious plants don't get killed. Um, If you have, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of uh, planting a little seedling out into your garden. You lovingly dig a hole and you pat it down. You put some soil around and you water it. Uh, And then you go inside and almost as soon as you close the door, there's a massive downpour. And it feels like the, the raindrops are like the size of tennis balls. And you're thinking, oh no, there's no chance that little seedling is gonna survive this, this downpour. And sure enough, you look out the window and it's, it's flattened. It's just on the ground, flattened. You, th- you think to yourself, oh well, there's always next year. Uh, and then you wake up the next day and guess what? That plant is doing great. It's standing up straight and tall, getting in the rays from the sun. The rain hasn't killed the plant. Actually, the rain has watered the soil and, if anything, made it stronger. If you wanted to kill that plant, what would you have to do? We all know the answer, don't we? You'd uproot it. If you really wanted to kill the plant, you'd take it out of the soil. We're a bit like that plant. Uh, Plants are made for the soil. We're made for a relationship with God. Um, God is our life source, just like the soil is the life source for that plant. God designed us, created us for a relationship with him and it's in relationship with him that we know true life, true health, true joy. Sin is like pulling that plant out of the soil. That's what sin does. By the way, at this point, I just want to be clear what I mean by sin. When I say the word sin, I don't mean just doing wrong things, bad behavior. I mean an attitude of our hearts in the deepest place that is turned away from God and turned towards self or or turned towards other things, like Sai was praying about, turned towards idols. It's an attitude that we're all born with. It comes out in different ways. It shows in different ways for different people, some obvious and some not so obvious, but it runs deep. It runs deep and it's deadly 
Because when you pull a plant away from the soil, what happens? It's disconnected, and the result is death. Sin separates us from God, our life source, and we're disconnected from him. What's the result? Death. And if you're not reconnected to God through faith in Jesus, that separation will go into eternity. The effect of sin is deadly. And even if you are reconnected, you could say, to God through faith in Jesus, you're united to him, Sin still damages. If you're a believer, you're united to Jesus. Sin doesn't lose you your salvation. That's really important to say. That's an unbreakable bond. But it does lose you your enjoyment of salvation. Sin damages relationship. It damages your communion with God, that sense of fellowship with him, that that sense of his presence, that awareness of his love, the joy in knowing him. You could say, if sin as a believer, it's not like pulling the plant out of the soil. It is like if you could maybe drain all the nutrients out of the soil. The plant's still planted in the ground, but it's, it's withering. It's, 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 it's not healthy. It's alive, but it's, it's miserable. So if that's the effect of sin, to always damage our relationship with God, then suffering is like the rain. <coughs> suffering is like the rain. It can feel overwhelming. Sometimes the things we go through can feel like those raindrops are coming down and they're the size of tennis balls, and it's hard. And sometimes we we feel like we're flattened by it. But if your roots are in a relationship with God, what does suffering do? It, It can push you closer to him. It doesn't have to break you. It can actually make you stronger. Just as the rain feeds the soil, suffering can push us closer to God, our life source. It can make us stronger. So can you see? Can you see why sin is a bigger problem than suffering? Because the thing that matters most, more than anything, is having a relationship with God. The relationship we were designed for, a healthy relationship with God. And suffering, in and of itself, doesn't have to damage our relationship with God. doesn't have to separate us from God. It can actually push us closer to him. Your suffering, whatever it is, it doesn't have to separate you from God. It doesn't have to damage your relationship with God. And it can push you closer to him. Sin always damages relationship with God. And I'm not saying suffering is not a problem. It is. I'm not saying it's not hard. It is. But God cares about your suffering. See uh, John chapter 11, a few pages over in the Bible where Jesus stands at the grave of one of his closest friends, Lazarus. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, but he still weeps angry and bitter tears at the pain that sin has caused in the world. God cares about your suffering. And it's not wrong to ask for relief or for healing from suffering. The man here does, and Jesus heals him. But there were also many people in that man's uh, town and in the communities of Jesus' day that didn't get healed. Why? Not because Jesus doesn't care. He just doesn't promise to heal because that's not his primary mission. His primary mission, in his first coming at least, is to deal with sin. Because sin's a bigger problem than suffering. That's the first thing Jesus wants us to learn. The second thing, second really important thing, is that only he can deal with your sin problem. Only Jesus can deal with your sin problem. And that's the point of the miracle 
isn't it? Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. That's a big claim to have divine authority. The scribes question him. So he then heals the man to demonstrate, to prove the point, he's got the authority to forgive sin. He can deal with our sin problem. And you might think, yeah, I, I believe that. I agree with that. Yeah, only Jesus can deal with my sin problem. The question is, do we really believe it in practice? Do we live this out? I think often the fact that we don't is shown by our responses to our sin when it's exposed. And it will be. Our sin will be exposed at some point, usually by someone close to us. It's difficult to live alongside someone um, in close proximity without your rough edges being shown, without your selfishness coming to the surface in some way. So I wonder if you could think of a time uh, when your sin has been exposed. Think of a time when your sin has been exposed in some way. Maybe you've done or said something selfish and someone uh, close to you has been hurt and they've called you out on it. Uh, Maybe a secret, something you've been trying to keep uh, secret from others or or something from your past is discovered. Um, Or maybe it's just an internal thing. The Holy Spirit prompts you, he nudges you about that thing in your life that that you know is wrong. When your sin is exposed, how do you react? Typically, I think we try and deny, that's our first port of call, try and deny it. It wasn't me, didn't happen. If there's too much evidence, we might try and defend ourselves, give reasons, I was tired, I was stressed, this bad thing happened to me. Maybe that doesn't work, and you need to own your sin and take responsibility for it. How do you react then? Maybe you might promise um, to try harder, Next time it won't happen again, I promise. Maybe you make plans to try and avoid yourself from falling into the same trap again. You might ask someone to hold you accountable. Uh, maybe you deal with your sin by punishing yourself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay for this myself by taking away something good or, or hurting myself in some way. Maybe you try and distract yourself by just running away from the problem, running into other things and hoping it goes away. All kinds of ways we instinctively deal with, try and deal with our sin problem. The problem is, none of them work because the the virus of sin runs too deep. It's it's hardwired into our human DNA. There's only one way that works to deal with sin, and that's Jesus. Recognizing that our our sin is not just against others, it's not just against ourselves. it's against God, and therefore it needs God's forgiveness. It's against you and you only I have sinned. Realizing that and then coming to Jesus, confessing our sin. And when we do that, Jesus not only has the authority to forgive sins, but he will forgive our sin. Because he himself has taken the punishment for our sin. He's taken your sin to the cross so that you can be free and forgiven. And if you've never done this, never brought your sin to Jesus at the cross and asked for his forgiveness, then you can. You can today. You can know your sin's forgiven. You can receive his forgiveness. And there is such joy and freedom in knowing that you are forgiven by God of all your sin. There's nothing like it. Maybe you're a Christian already, um, but you're not experiencing that joy and freedom. And, and you know there's, there's something Something blocking your communion with God. Something taking away your enjoyment of him. You can come to him too. Confessing 
your sin, whatever it is, because he's taken your sin. Don't let whatever it is that's blocking you from him drain away the nutrients from the soil of your relationship with him. You can come, you can confess. Two things. There's the two things. Jesus wants us to know your sin is a bigger problem than your suffering, and only he can deal with your sin problem. When you go to the doctor with a stomach pain and you find you've got appendicitis, it's a shock, it can be uncomfortable. And when we come to Jesus with our problems and our suffering and we find, oh, I've got a sin problem, it's much worse than I thought, it can be uncomfortable. It can feel shocking. But it's also a relief, isn't it? A relief. To know my problem's really understood and I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place to get help from the doctor. So I want to just finish with a question. A question for us all. If, if you really believed both these things to be true, what difference would it make? If you really believed both these things to be true, you really believed it, what difference would it make? Just, just take a minute and think about that. If you really believe both these things to be true, what difference would it make? I think it would change what we pray for, wouldn't it? It would change how we pray. We'd be quicker to confess. We can be very quick to bring our problems to God in prayer, uh, and that's understandable, especially when our problems are painful. Uh, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be real with God and bring our struggles to him. Absolutely, he wants us to and he invites that. All I'm saying is that Jesus is saying this morning that you might have a bigger problem than you realize. So if we really believe this was true, wouldn't we be quicker in prayer to confess our sin? If God is good, if an unbroken, healthy relationship with him is the best thing we could ever experience, and if sin damages that, always, without exception, wouldn't we be searching our hearts? God, I don't want anything to get in the way of a, the closest possible fellowship I can have with you. Please show me my sin. Show me my hidden sins so I can root them out, so I can be ruthless in putting them to death. I don't want anything to separate me from you. I wonder how much of your personal prayer is taken up with confession? How much time do you spend in confession in your personal prayer life? If not much, well, are these things true? Do you really believe them to be true? And as we grow more sensitive to our own sin, I want to suggest another thing, that we might grow more open to suffering as well. Not that we don't struggle with it, not that we don't ask for help for it, but perhaps we're more open to God using it. That situation that feels overwhelming and you feel like you're just flattened by it. To say, actually, God, if, if that's something that you want to use to push me up against you, to push me closer to you, my life source, ultimately, that's what I want. I want to be close to you. So I'm open. Grow me through this hard time. And it's interesting. When you read the prayers in the New Testament that the early Christians prayed for each other, they don't pray much about circumstances. They don't pray much for their situation to change. They do pray quite a lot for changing each other, changing character, growth in Christ-likeness, growth in maturity. And it makes sense. That makes sense, doesn't it? If this is true. The reason that our sin is a problem is that it cuts us off from God. 
the God of life, the God of love, the God of joy, the relationship we were designed for. So don't deny, don't defend, don't try and deal with it yourself. There's only one way that your sin problem can be dealt with. Come to Jesus. If it's your first time or your 500th time, come to him. And you know the best thing? The best thing is that there's nothing he loves to do more than forgive. There's one detail that I missed in the passage when we went through it earlier. And it's the words Jesus uses when he sees the paralytic for the first time in verse two. They bring the man to him and Jesus says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Do you feel the warmth in those words? Take heart, my son. Feel the love, the kindness? Do you you feel the welcome in Jesus' words? Take heart, my son. Jesus loves to welcome sinners. And if you don't believe me, read the rest of the Gospels. Read the whole Bible. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, he loves the humble. He loves the broken, the, the outcasts. Those who come to him knowing they need him, knowing they have nothing to bring. He's on their side all the way through the Bible. There's nothing that Jesus loves to do more than forgive a broken sinner. So come to him. Come to him with your sin. Don't let anything hold you back from him. Come to him and receive his forgiveness, the forgiveness that he loves to give, the forgiveness that he offers. And find joy. Find joy in the life that you were made for. Let me pray, and then we'll sing our our last song. Father, we do thank you so much. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the the forgiveness that um, is possible in him. Uh, Thank you that Jesus is able to deal with our sin problem. Uh, May we each be quicker to confess, to, to search out, to root out those things in our hearts, in our lives, which are going in the opposite direction from you, anything that might be blocking all of us here from a closer, unbroken fellowship and relationship with you. Um, Open our eyes to those things by your Holy Spirit. Show us what they might be that we need to confess. And may we come to you with those things, each of us, and find the forgiveness and find the life that we are made for. In Jesus' name, amen.